Welcome to the first episode of Footnotes, a B-Sides of History podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side of history, and those who lost. Uh, my name is Mark. I am not a historian, and I am here with my best friend since second grade, Kevin, who is more of one. <laughs> Thank you, historian, and that's about as far as I'd go. For a show that's all about B-sides of history, those things, have, those stories, those people that have been forgotten, we're starting with a true redheaded stepchild of the history world, events that happened in the 1850s, focusing on adventurers and mercenaries from the United States doing interesting escapades in Central America. Anyone who's read anything from a history book, especially if you read a textbook, you're being forced to take American history in high school or that GE class in college that you probably slept through, and you focus on lots of dates and, you know, specific people. The decades from about 1820 up until the Civil War really get about a paragraph of information on them. No one really cares because all they are doing is setting up events that occurred during the Civil War. People talk about states' rights, the ever-dividing North and South uh, division in the country, and lots of discussion on slavery and its role in the Civil War. But the one topic that becomes uh, very interesting because it focuses on American culture is Manifest Destiny. And that is something that most people should recognize. It's one of those big topics that at least has two or three multiple-choice questions on the quiz and a few questions on the final that um, was basically the extended movement of Americans across the United States from pretty much the Louisiana Purchase on. And when you think about it, it was kind of a crazy event because people would get tired of where they lived somewhere in the East Coast or Ohio, pack up their whole family, and simply march across the United States. Now, Mark and I used to play Oregon Trail, when we were in elementary school. And anyone who's played that game brings back some nostalgia, but you would get in your covered wagon, you'd name all of your family members after your friends, and then you'd laugh as they died of dysentery. Or cholera. Or, or fording a river. Fording a river, exactly. But that was the real-life experience of these people. They would grab their family, as many children as they had, and they would just go and try to find a better life. And it embodied an American cultural ethos that was all about expansion. This was a young nation that had enormous energy that wanted to populate this continent that they called empty. Obviously, the continent wasn't empty. And of the less than positive aspects of this expansion. Today, we're going to focus on a man named William Walker. Uh, it's a fairly common name. But specifically, this William Walker was a um, soldier of fortune. And he is best known for being the president of Nicaragua. And being played by Mel Gibson. <laughs> and is it's really, really hard to not call him William Wallace. Trust me, I will probably call him William Wallace at least once. Because that name seems to stick out more. But William Walker. This one did not yell freedom at any point. No, <laughs> no. He did talk very high and mightily, just like William Wallace did. And he did actually argue for many of the same things. But his actions were not the same. <laughs> um, so we'll get into William Walker in a second. But you have to start William Walker's story touching on the basic culture that surrounded Americans in the 1850s and really the few decades before that. Now, the best source I have for William Walker 
and manifest destiny in the culture of the mid 19th century um, is a book by a guy named William Scroggs. Now, this book was written like 1902, I believe. So it's a pretty old book and it's got some, you know, cultural undertones that are a little unsatis, you know, savory to us now. But it's by far the best source for William Walker and his events because it goes into really great detail about the background, the culture, and all of that. And Scroggs really comes up with a good quote right at the beginning of the book that describes the mindset, the zeitgeist of people in this era. And it goes like so. As soon as they set foot on American soil, the colonists from Europe were compelled to wrest their lands from the savages, many of whom resisted the invaders to the death. Nature as well as the natives had to be subdued. Road and field were cleared with axe and spade. Pioneers built their log cabins far in the wilderness. And, like the advance guard of a marching army, kept always ahead of the main body of westward-moving settlers. There was no arrest of their westward progress till the pioneers stood on the shores of the Pacific. Basically, people would surrender their lives wherever they were and just hope for the best, oftentimes taking infants with them, uprooting their whole families. And in many cases, and I would say the vast majority were actually single men going out on their own. Now we're doing this first recording in Northern California in an old mining town. And that's very fitting because William Walker lived in this town as well as a couple of the other Northern California areas. And the gold rush is probably one of the best examples, um, at least in California history, of people just going across the country. But I want to start real quick giving Mark a question. For all of these dangerous adventures that people are going on, we're going to go on some greater details. Are we the same Americans that would just get up and leave and go on the Oregon Trail and Ford Rivers? Or have we changed? I think we uh, approach risk differently now. I think that, uh, especially in 2018, with the social internet and the connectedness of everything, I think that we definitely have a very, very obvious adventurous spirit, the desire to strike out and to be known and to make a name for ourselves. And there's a lot of interest in fame and fortune and notoriety and trying to create something for yourself that can be seen by other people. I just think that instead of fording rivers, we're, we're doing stuff like that on the internet now. And uh, I think the nature of it's different. I think that the theoretical cost of your livelihood and all those things are certainly still a risk today. Uh, back then, you might die of dysentery or a broken wagon wheel because, once again, Oregon Trail is about all I know. But, uh, but even today, like the desire to like set out and to like make yourself known on like the internet even can have massive negative repercussions for your livelihood. You can lose your job if if people on the internet decide to organize a campaign against you, or even just accidental embarrassment can can result in a lot of a lot of ongoing, basically permanent for your entire life embarrassments and shame and loss of opportunity. Yeah, I agree. I think people don't have to leave. And if they do, they get to get on a plane and fly. You know, this was a different era. I think life was a little cheaper, even someone's own life, because infant mortality rates were high. People would die much younger of easily curable diseases. You broke your arm and got infected, you could die. And because of that, the risk seemed lower to them. Hmm. They could just leave, and if they died, well, people died. And so I, I actually like your comparison with the kind of the social death that you can have. It's just the modern version of the physical death of these poor people. That's interesting. I hadn't considered the idea that like the 
subjective value like like value proposition of risk of actual physical risk back then would have been considered lower because the day-to-day dangers were so much higher then that's interesting that's an interesting notion that i hadn't considered about that well most of these people um, that moved their families were farmers farming is one of the most tenuous enterprises you can possibly join in one bad season where it snows too much or it doesn't rain enough or it rains too much or it rains a little too much at this time and not enough at this time. We're talking really small windows. You run out of food. Now, in the 19th century, people weren't dying of famines anymore. There were enough stores of food and there was enough ways that people could survive. But that just meant that they left things up to fate or what they called providence with a capital P. This idea that there was a guiding hand that would just make things work out or not work out. Either one was about the same. Starting the little narrative here of William Walker, I'm just going to give a brief background to this guy because he ends up becoming this incredibly famous man in his time. He was born in Nashville, Tennessee. He was a man of a fairly well-to-do family. He was the oldest surviving son. I think he was actually the third child. So again, life was a little cheaper, infant mortality. He actually went to college and graduated summa cum laude at age 14. To give you an idea, people graduated earlier then, but it doesn't matter. He was very, very smart. He was exceptionally good at language. And so the one thing that this guy did was he went into law eventually. But first, he said, I want to go into medicine. And when he decided to go into medicine, he graduated very early and he became a physician. And that really set him up for the first tragedy in his life. William Walker, um, his early life, was hit hard by two very important losses to him. The first was his mother, who fell sick. He was a physician. He couldn't heal her, and she died. And from then on, he decided, no, I can't do this. I don't want to be a physician. He was a well-trained doctor and had practiced medicine for six years or so. And then he quit being a physician and became a lawyer instead, using that uh, talent for languages. He spoke many languages, even when he just lived in the United States. Practiced law for a while, and then he found his way down to New Orleans. Now, you can tell that we're from Northern California because I call it New Orleans. So <laughs> New Orleans, I guess, if you want to call it that. New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah. Uh, but New Orleans is what I'll call it. And when he was down there, he learned the different law that is in uh, New Orleans. It's French civil law, which actually has legalized um, slavery. It has laws that were based off of the French laws rather than British law. And so that made him an expert in pretty much every kind of law that was practiced in the United States. So he became extremely well known in the high-level social circles of Louisiana. It's here that his second tragedy really befalls him. This is the one that has a very big impact on his life, because we'll talk about his character a little bit. And when you talk about his character, most of his most famous traits come from his relationship with a woman named Ellen Martin. Ellen Martin was a well-born woman. She was from a family that was fairly wealthy, but she was deaf. And she was deaf in an era that just was developing things like sign language, those who were blind, or um, Braille was being developed around this time. So the major, most common forms of disabilities um, are getting sort of a mainstream accepted status to a much greater extent at this time. And so this woman was apparently very witty, but she would have to do it in an interesting way because she couldn't hear, and no one spoke sign language. It, it, it existed, but practically no one spoke it. So she would go to these uh, dinner parties, and she would write jokes and have a written conversation with people and pass the paper back and forth. 
And so he fell madly in love with this woman. And he actually learned sign language. He's probably one of the first people to learn sign language so that he could speak with her. They get engaged and she dies of yellow fever within a couple of months. So he's trying to develop this life. He's a well-respected lawyer. He's learned an entirely new set of law. He's learned a bizarre new language that he finds utterly fascinating. He finds this beautiful woman and she is taken from him. And pretty much every book you read about William Walker will mention that this was the turning point when, from about here on out, he pretty much never smiles. He's known for never speaking, never smiling, sitting and staring at people who are in his environment. But that actually works to his advantage, because the one thing that he has going for him is he has these incredibly unique gray eyes. If you take a look at his picture, if you go to his Wikipedia page and look at his picture, you'll, you'll see him. And he's a very nondescript looking man. He's very small. He's probably like 5'5", five five, very slender, barely over 100 pounds. But his eyes are just this white gray. And they were captivating to people. Well, he really embodied this manifest destiny culture because after his fiancée, Ellen Martin, dies, he finds his way to California. Now, I have no idea how he got to California. No one really knows how, because there's three ways you can go to California. Because at this point, the gold rush had just begun. He goes there in the early 1850s. The gold rush starts in 1848, and it's pretty much over by 1851. They pretty much got all the gold out of California. Hence rush. Yes, (laughs) it was definitely a rush. Um, He finds his way to San Francisco first, and he becomes a... Um, a newspaper editor there instead. Now, like I said, I don't know how he got there. I don't think he took the Oregon Trail because there's no evidence of him crossing over land like that, and he would have had to go up to Oregon first, and I don't think he did that. The other route, which was the most common, was he got on a sailing ship. That's one, you know, with big sails. There were um, steamboats at this point, but he went down around South America, across the coast of Brazil, down below the Straits of Magellan, up the West Coast, up Central America, around Baja California, up to California. That's a very long, dangerous trip. Most of it, most of the danger is down around Argentina and Chile down at the bottom, where the, it's just constant winds. And a lot of ships never came back. The third route that he may have taken when he got to California is the one that if he did, or at least makes more sense to me that he went this way, because it was across the country of Nicaragua. Nowadays, there's, a, there's the Panama Canal. It's incredibly complicated. It was finished in 1914. It didn't exist back then. And Panama was a, just a giant jungle that was very hard for people to get across. Well, Nicaragua has a big advantage over Panama. And that is there, there is a lake in the center of Nicaragua called Lake Nicaragua. The country is named after the lake. And it's connected to the Caribbean Sea by a river called the San Juan River. And then between Lake Nicaragua and the Pacific Ocean is a about 12-mile-long piece of land. So the other way you could get across was a ship would lay anchor in a port called Greytown. You'd get on a steamer, a double paddle wheel steamer that would steam up the river. Once you got up the river, you get on a river steamer and these are like pleasure cruise steamers and it would send you to a port called um, Virgen Bay or Virgin Bay. You get off there and you'd cross on stagecoach, get to Pacific Ocean, take another steamer up to California. Now, as long as that sounds, that's significantly shorter than going around the tip of South America. I'm going to take a moment and say, this episode is brought to you by Southwest Airlines, now offering $49 flights to California. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, the, the difference in travel time nowadays is stark. It's yeah, so much yeah. easier to travel from here to there. I just took an hour-long flight to Southern California. That's unheard of. It would take them three or four days to get that far. It's not even longer. I'm not quite sure how long it would take. But because of this, Nicaragua is a fairly famous place in this time period because it was a shortcut. And an entire company had been set up uh, that was formed by a man named Cornelius Vanderbilt. You may have heard of him. Vanderbilt University in Asheville, Tennessee, ironically, is named after him. He set up this company called the Accessory Transit Company that crossed that little area. He ran all the steamers, and he also uh, started to pave a road, macadamized, or think of rocky, gravelly pavement, to cross that little land part. And he was making an enormous amount of money. We're going to come back to that because... Cornelius Vanderbilt and his accessory transit company is an incredibly important factor in William Walker's life. Now, returning to Walker, while he was in San Francisco, he was famous for his duels. He was clearly a reckless guy at this point. Um, He was editing newspapers. He had abandoned law once he left New Orleans. And he was editing newspapers, and he was criticizing the police and some of the wealthy men who were running San Francisco, because San Francisco at this point was a lawless wasteland. Uh, pass. And there was only about 50,000 people there, but they were living in huts, and they were, it was basically a starting point for those who were going to the gold rush, but it was being packed by people who had spent time out in the gold fields, run out of gold, because there was no more gold, and they'd come back, and they were just basically twiddling their thumbs and had nothing to do. So there was a lot of crime, a lot of violence, a lot of drunkenness. And so he was criticizing a lot of people for not handling that well. Well, one guy by the name of William Graham took offense to this and challenged William Walker to a duel. And Walker was not a good marksman. He was not a duelist. And this guy was. This guy was a famous Wild West gunslinger. So William Walker's story probably should have ended at this duel because they lined up with five-shot pistols. Uh, however many yards apart you were supposed to line up when you're shooting point-blank at each other. They about-faced, stood at each other, both aimed and fired. Walker missed. Graham did not. Hit Walker in the leg, missing his femoral artery barely. Walker shot again, but bleeding profusely, he shot high. Graham then shoots Walker a second time, and Walker collapses, but survives, clearly. Yeah. Because we have a podcast about him. Right. They, they can see what the name of the episode is. Yes. But it just kind of shows the early character of this guy. He was willing to make enemies and then shoot at them. And get shot by them. And get shot by them. Fair enough. He actually becomes famous because of this, because a lot of the citizens of San Francisco liked the fact that he was criticizing these people. They liked his newspapers. They liked what he wrote about. He became someone who could write um, in a way or speak in a way that when he did speak, because he rarely spoke, he could captivate people's loyalty. So just keep that in mind that his followers go through. He finds his way up to Marysville, and he starts a newspaper there. It's from here that he decides to jump on something called filibustering. Now, most people are going to think of the word filibustering as a senator standing in front of the Senate, reading the phone book, trying to delay the passage of a bill, or just talking for the sake of talking on the floor of some form of like parliament. And that word, filibustering, is based off of this term, filibustering. 
Because during this time, Americans were invading everywhere. They weren't doing it, though, in the way you'd think. A bunch of single guys, many of whom had fought in the Mexican-American War, would join up, be well-funded by some businessman or some southern plantation owner, and go invade a Central American country. They would usually be in small numbers, between 50 and 200. And they would try to conquer those countries and then set up their own country and spread democracy in that way. This is something that was happening, like, on the reg. This was constant. So let's talk about the term filibustering. Because when most people hear the term filibuster, what they think of is Strom Thurmond standing on the Senate floor reading the phone book. Or just any sort of public figure in some form of congressional house talking and talking and talking, trying to delay the passage of a bill and getting attention. And they're fairly common. That term actually gets its origin from people like Walker, who were called filibusters. And that term comes from an old Dutch word, which is pronounced similarly, but it means pirate or privateer. And this is back in the age of sail, back in the 1600s, when, you know, we're thinking Pirates of the Caribbean type ships were plying the Caribbean Sea and would just show up with a crew of pirates and wreak havoc, stay for too long, make their presence known in a very negative way, and wouldn't leave. So these filibusters are common, incredibly common, way more common than you think. Though most of the campaigns are pretty short. And the way it works is like this. A group, a small group of men, almost always young men, many of them being veterans of either the um, Mexican-American War or the Republic of Texas like Independence Campaign, or even sometimes mercenaries that fought in some of the little European wars that had happened. They would gather up, be well-financed by some rich person, oftentimes a rich southern plantation owner, and they would go and invade a Central American or Caribbean country that the United States was actively at peace with. So the American government tried to prevent this, but at this point the American government's very small and doesn't really do a lot. And these guys were well supported in going off on these adventures by the, by the public. They were often written about in the newspapers as heroes as bringing democracy to, in the time, backwards countries, as people thought they were. So there's a long list of them, the most famous of which is Walker's campaign in Nicaragua. But another really famous one that had just happened after Walker moved to Marysville was an attempt to invade Cuba and conquer Cuba in about 1850, which pretty much resulted in the deaths of every single person involved. I would say a dozen or so, maybe a, few, a couple dozen, Men of the multiple hundred Americans that traveled there from New Orleans made it back. The Spanish authorities at the time who ruled Cuba just killed them all. And that was the end result of a lot of these campaigns. It's a fair reaction. I agree. <laughs> and you will see that from you know, constantly from about 1845 to 1855, maybe by 1860, there's a bunch of these. I would say at least 20. And Walker actually participates in two. So while in Marysville... And then he actually lives in Auburn for a while, where we are. Walker begins to discuss with a bunch of bored men. They have spent, this is my theory, they have spent their time living in California in the gold rush. They have run out of things to do, and they want adventure. They want fame and wealth and fortune. These are mercenaries, soldiers of fortune. There's nothing to conquer in California. So they try to find a place that they can set up shop 
and bring American values and democracy and American culture to some group of people who they look down upon. And so the first opportunity was when a Mexico, Mexican garrison in this, the Mexican state of Sonora asks for help for um, the fact that had, uh, Apache Indians were basically constantly raiding them. Well, they had asked for help, so Walker and a bunch of his companions decide to go conquer Sonora. They get on a boat, and they travel to Sonora, right on the Baja California coast. Under the guise of relief, correct? Under the guise of relief. Okay. No, that's what they say they're going to yeah, do. They're yeah. going to help um, the Mexican authorities, who are basically isolated in a single town. The countryside is com- mostly run by the, the people who live there and have lived there for millennia. Um, and we're not particularly happy with the Mexican authorities there. But when they show up, it's very clear to the Mexican government that they're not there to help them. They're there to conquer them. So the Mexican authorities say, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll give you help if you just go off into the desert. We'll, we'll send supplies to you. Basically, go off in the desert and die. Right. To Walker's credit, he realizes this, that they're going to just try to kill him. So he leaves. And he goes down to Baja California in a place called La Paz, the peace. And he declares the Republic of Sonora in Baja California, which isn't Sonora, and starts his own country. The details of this, you can look it up if you want. Um, we're not going to spend too much time on it. But basically, he fails miserably. He treats people poorly. They know what he's trying to do. They know who filibusters are. They kick him out. He basically has to walk up Baja California, and he crosses into San Diego. He left with about 42, he left with 42 guys, or 40, uh, 45 men. It lasted seven months, and they almost all die. And the ones that survive are missing limbs because they were fighting in battles. They're um, dying of thirst. They are brutalized. So a lot of these guys are doing this under the guise of bringing democracy, et cetera, et cetera. It's pretty obvious that most of them are former military types, mercenaries, had fought in wars and battles and stuff like that. Walker has no military background, correct? Nope. Do we know what drives him to this amongst all these people who actually have a background in this? He was a bit of a megalomaniac, is I think the best way to put it. He really thought of himself as some form of chosen man. When you read his book, he wrote a book about all of this. He writes about himself being guided by the hands of providence. He uses exceptionally grandiose language when he's defending his actions. Um, He just thought that his presence in a place made that place better. An American presence in a place made that place better. And so by going to these places, he was improving them. Even if that meant killing people. Even if that meant removing their rights. Even if that meant completely subjugating them. He thought in the end it was best for them. This is the era of imperialism. This is when Europeans and American Europeans went and did this all over the planet. This is just kind of the American version. And it has a unique aspect of it because it's completely illegal. Even the American government yeah. hates it. So he, he comes back to Marysville as a, a failure, but he's a popular figure because he tried. He went out and did this thing, and the general public really supports this. They think of this as an amazing thing. There works, you know, to them, we're expanding democracy. We're making the world a better place. He's in all the newspapers. And so he's looking for an opportunity while in California still, to do this again. But as he spends his time, 
he starts getting more followers, more respected people, getting together a bigger group of people who will support him. So he has more financial backing, and he starts to get an idea of a place that he can go. And the country of Nicaragua, at this point, is in the middle of a civil war. Now, they had been in an on-and-off civil war for a long time. Constant battles between two basic government entities. There was what you can think of as a conservative party and a liberal party. One supported one constitution, the other one supported the other constitution. The constitutions are really similar. They go by the names of the um, legitimistas, the legitimates, legitimists, and the um, democraticos, the democrats. So the legitimists versus the democrats. The legitimists are the conservatives, the democrats are the liberals. Again, they're very similar. There's, there's been this civil war that's been brewing for a while. And remember, Nicaragua is a place that a lot of Americans have been to, and specifically a lot of Americans who are now in California have been to. Because, of, they, all, because of all the steamboats. Because of all the steamboats. Cornelius Vanderbilt, in about 1850-ish, had com- really modernized the, r- the route across. And to give you an idea of why Walker was likely um, attracted to this, comes from Scroggs again. There's a good quote for this. He says, The constant revolutions in Nicaragua caused the traveler no little inconvenience and made him long for the day when the United States should interpose a strong arm and establish law and order on the isthmus. Of this final outcome, no American at that time expressed the slightest doubt, for it was then that the belief in the manifest destiny of the United States was strongest and the land hunger of its people sharpest. In the past 50 years... They had devoured everything west of the Father of Waters, that is the Mississippi River, and the appetite had only increased with the eating. Basically, in the past 50 years, they had run out of land. They got to California, and they had been inconvenienced by the Civil War. It's not easy to travel through an area where there's soldiers fighting. Now, thankfully, most of the fighting was just to the north of this transit road and the lake, but there was still constant inconvenience, constant, um, let's say you get out on a ship, You'd be waiting on the ship, and you'd have to wait there for three months in the tropical heat, in the rainy season, because they're fighting about. I was once on a plane that was delayed 20 minutes, so I know what they went through. <laughs> we exactly. can cut as many of those jokes as we exactly. want. Exactly, It's fine. <laughs> that joke not brought to you by Southwest Airlines. <laughs> I like so this. So this is similar to what I was asking about the, uh, the soldiers earlier, like... Like, you're going, yes, they're under the guise of something else, but really it's just all they know is fighting and they want to keep fighting. Now you have the American spirit, which is this expansion, and you hit an ocean and you're like, well, we have to keep doing this. What else are we going to do? All we've been doing with our lives for so long is expanding territory and being not super considerate of the people who may have already been there. I think that's a perfect summary. I think that's what this was. Great. We'll see you next month. (laughs) I think that... Walker saw this opportunity because the man who was leading the Democraticos, a man by the name of Castellon, he actively called for help. He had um, American contacts because of all the Americans crossing um, Nicaraguan territory. And he actually calls out for American mercenaries. He's losing. You, You don't call for mercenaries when you're winning. And so he's calling for help because he's losing his war. William Walker joins the American authorities, once they figure out that he's trying to leave, they try to stop him, but he manages to sneak away. 
And he only leaves with a little over 50 men. And he takes his steamer and goes all the way down to a place called San Juan del Sur, which is San Juan of uh, St. John of the South, which is the, um, the port, the Pacific port for Nicaragua. And he unloads there and he goes and meets with Castellon. And he's there to fight for him. Now, it's pretty obvious from the very beginning, again, that Walker plans on being independent. He plans on trying to establish himself as much as possible. And one of the first things he tries to do is to set himself up as a citizen of Nicaragua. Because what he's doing as a mercenary, an American citizen who's a mercenary, is extremely illegal. And he won't get any support. In fact, he'll be imprisoned and jailed by any American authorities that are there. And there's a consulate there. There's American naval boats there. There's an American presence in Nicaragua because of all the Americans transferring back and forth. So Castellón is aware of this, but he needs the help. So right off the bat, Castellón gives Walker the mission of taking a city that will become the most important city for Walker while he's in Nicaragua. It's a city called Rivas. Rivas is the city that controls the road part of the Nicaraguan transit. There's basically the three parts, right? There's the river, the lake, the road. It controls the road. And since it controls the Pacific side, that's the most important side. That's where all the cities are in Nicaragua. Look on a map. The, all the main cities are in a north-south line just above this road. So he tries to take this town. This is a tiny town. But it has three roads that connect it to the transit road. So whoever controls the road controls the transit. Whoever controls the transit controls all the money and controls access to supplies and men coming from the United States. Walker knows this. He knows if he's going to be able to set up his country that he wants to do, he wants to do this from the very beginning, he has to control this place. Well, the Nicaraguans, the legitimists, know that too. So they have an, an army there. They have a garrison there. That's a garrison of a couple hundred guys. Walker has 50, plus he has about 100 Nicaraguan soldiers given to him by Castellón. Castellón wants to put him into his own, into the Nicaraguan army. He said, Walker says no. So they kind of agree to disagree at first. And the first battle of Rivas is a really short battle, but it shows you uh, how pretty much every battle is fought in these cities. You can think of these cities as a central square surrounded by a bunch of thick-walled adobe structures. Think of old Spanish missions, because that's what they really are. They're old 1500 Spanish architecture, really thick mud walls with big open windows, only a couple streets in and out of the city, but a giant central plaza, a couple of churches and convents around forming other big buildings. Well, here's how Walker does every battle, pretty much. He gets his men together, and he just charges into the center of the city. And when he does that... It's a bold move. It is a bold move. He conquers the plaza. You have the center of the city. All the Nicaraguan soldiers did, the legitimate soldiers, back up to the thick-walled buildings and shoot at him. And so his soldiers are charging out in the open. And mind you, they're getting shot at, but they're not getting hit a lot. We'll talk about that after this battle. But his soldiers get forced into a bunch of the houses. They're stuck inside these buildings, holed up in just a room, you know, holding doors closed because the Nicaraguans are just shooting through the building. And they're stuck because they ran into a city, ran to the center of it, and didn't do anything. So they get surrounded, and they're forced to fight their way out. Thankfully, after a lot of hard fighting, they do. And they basically fight their way out when the Nicaraguans are lining up to attack them in a full-on, like, think a, you know, Revolutionary War line, all with the rifles ready to shoot. The, uh, the filibuster troops, the Americans, they just charge them. They put on their bayonets, they load their guns, and they run straight at the enemy guns, 
screaming and shooting them. And instead of fighting them, they run straight through them and run away because they were outnumbered and they were just trying to leave. This is like some slapstick, like if Leslie Nielsen was making an airplane style movie, that is what the combat would look like. Now I'm ridiculing it a little bit. When you read- It's like, a fair point. When you read Walker's account of it, he talks about, you know, all the bravery and the amazing feats that soldiers did. And you know, to be perfectly honest, this is brave. You know, this is foolhardy. So but the it, confidence that goes with ignorance. But it tends to work. He loses the battle, but he doesn't lose all of his men. When he had fought in Sonora, he lost all his men. This time he gets away and he realizes that if he can stick around, he can get more men. Because he has contacts that are telling him he's going to have more soldiers come. So he knows he just bides his time. At this point, though, Castellon, the Democratic co-general, is very bad. But Castellon still needs him. So Castellon eventually accedes to every one of Walker's demands. And Walker wants to be as independent and a Nicaraguan citizen. Because if he has that, then anyone who joins also can join legally. Because what Castellon says is, okay, if you're a citizen, or what the general law was, if you are a citizen of Nicaragua, when you arrive and you join my military, you become a citizen, there's no illegality. The Americans can't stop them from leaving. Other Americans coming from California or coming from New York, which is the two places they mainly come from, they can't stop them. So keep that in mind, that everything Walker's doing, he knows if he can get more soldiers, he'll be more successful. At this point... So his two big strategies here are attempting to just survive until reinforcements and survive until legitimacy. Yeah. Interesting. And his way, in his mind, of getting legitimacy is winning a big battle. Um, these are not large battles. Remember, he's fighting with 50 guys. Also in the Battle of Rivas, all of his allied soldiers left him. When they were all attacking the city, all the Nicaraguan soldiers with him, they all run away. So it was only the Americans who ran into the city. The big problem with that first battle, it's called the First Battle of Rivas. In the end, there'll be five Battles of Rivas. The First Battle of Rivas, he loses most of his main followers. Um, his officers, they were self-appointed most of the time or appointed by Walker. These are guys that were with him in Sonora, the survivors from the Republic of Sonora. So they were his complete zealots. They were his followers to the last. He loses about half of them um, because they were running in the front with a pistol. And they were obviously the officers and they were the ones shot at the most. And so this is the big disadvantage. So he almost leaves. Um, he, in fact, had chartered a boat. He was on a boat to leave when he's given all the things he wants. And uh, the Nicaraguan uh, Democratico government gives him and his unit a special name. They become the Falange, which is Spanish for phalanx. Think Greek phalanx. And that's the name that they use for themselves, always in Spanish. Mind you, Walker speaks Spanish. At this point also, he had never spoken Spanish, even though he spoke Spanish. And so he was basically tricking them by pretending he didn't understand what they were saying. Oh, so he, hadn't, he had not spoken Spanish since he had arrived there mm -hmm. as a way to kind of listen in on yeah. interesting. He just simply sits there quietly, staring at him, fully aware of what the guy's saying, having a very awkward translation from one of his officers, and then he just flips on his Spanish, and it take, they're all taken aback. More reinforcements begin to show up. It's impossible to keep track of how many Americans are there at any given time. The number fluctuates wildly. But these early arrivals are pretty gung-ho. They mostly come from California. And the soldiers that come from California are these mercenary types that you've already mentioned. You've already kind of summarized them well. These are fighters. 
they're there to make money. They're there because they're bored. They want to go have an adventure. They'll come from other places too, but at first, he just keeps getting little groups of 50, 100. They just trickle into his army. The Nicaraguan uh, Democratic Forces give him about 100, 200 as well. So he's got this kind of mixed army. He's got a Nicaraguan uh, general that he really trusts. And he's desperately trying to fight something. Because he knows if his soldiers just stick around and don't do anything, they'll start to plunder the countryside. Because these are the kinds of guys that are here. So he is very adamant to attack, 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 attack. So the first thing he's able to achieve is he finally gets a victory. So remember I said that there's that city, the port on Lake Nicaragua called, um, it's called, I'll just call it Virgin Bay, Virgen Bay. He moves his army over to there because he knows that that's an important place to be. The legitimists attack him. He does probably his best generalship in this battle because he splits his army into three groups, including some um, guarding his flank, some on a, a high point up on a hill, and some in the city itself, which is basically like 20 huts. It's a very small city. He's attacked by somewhere between five and ten times more men than he has. When the legitimist forces, the, the Nicaraguan other side in the Civil War, attack him, they charge him, shooting high, screaming, and not with a lot of enthusiasm. These guys are using rifles that are obsolete, the Nicaraguans are. The Americans have mini balls. They have muskets. They actually have rifles. Rifles that they can aim. That's a huge advantage. So when we talk about these battles, he's outnumbered in all of them, at least five to one. And this one's no exception. It's the second battle. He only has a couple hundred guys, but there's over a thousand attacking him. But these guys, he says in Walker, in his book, he tries to talk about what he's fighting. And apparently Nicaraguans would melt down iron ingots and shoot just random, irregularly shaped iron balls out of their guns. And are these guns like more muskets than anything else? Yeah. Single shot, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. The the kind you have to pour. Some of them are even flintlock. We have to open up a little container and pour musk, you know, put the powder in. These are old school guns. Come on, man. You got to (laughs) upgrade. They do. You'll see. Oh, spoilers. Uh, So they charge him and he just mows them down. Right. In this battle. Um, They do manage to get behind him. There's a couple of really risky moments. A lot of just great stories of heroism on both sides. Um, but he wins the battle pretty outright. The legitimist forces were likely drunk because as they turned and ran away, they left behind these massive jugs of agua caliente, which is like rum. Uh, I think hot water is what that means. So it's um, fire water, same basic route to that. It looked like, he says in his book, it looks like cannonballs everywhere. As they ran, they just threw their packs. He even says he wasn't sure if they were drunk, but it's mentioned in pretty much every book. So, I mean, that's kind of an advantage when you're sober and they're not. From there, he sits himself at this place on Lake Nicaragua. Lake Nicaragua is very large. So there's lots of boats on it. And he's waiting for an opportunity to attack. And he wants to make a death blow. He wants to hit them once, the legitimate forces, hit them once, hit them hard, and defeat them. Because if he does that, he knows that'll give him a window to take over. At least it'll give him a window to end the Civil War and put him, if his forces were the ones who caused the Civil War to end, in a position of negotiator. So that's his hope. Well, he gets the advantage that he speaks English and he has the support, sometimes just the tacit support, of all the steamers going back and forth across the lake, which are fast and can hold his entire army. I mean, these are big boats and his army's tiny. So he hears that the legitimist forces have left their capital. Now the capital, is um, a place called Granada. 
and it's a large, relatively fortified city, and thinking that uh, they can you know, attack William Walker, the legitimist forces basically leave it open. At night, Walker boards a boat, goes around up to the edge of the coast right next to Granada, and attacks the empty city. And he functionally wins the war. This took a couple of months. The narrative of William Walker so far is super interesting. He comes across as like a very sympathetic figure, even though like, even what we already know about him, you feel like he's not the good guy. These filibusters are obviously just refusing to adapt to times of peace and refusing to, and just kind of seeking out to engage where there is violence for the sake of needing it. Walker is clearly self-interested and, as you said earlier, megalomaniacal, but he feels like this very sympathetic character because he goes from this very low-risk version of himself to this almost comically high-risk thing. Like, he goes from becoming a a doctor, one of the things that is supposed to preserve life, and he finds that he can't even save the people he cares about. And next thing you know, he's rushing straight into lines of people firing at him. There's stuff that happens in the middle there, but like he goes from being clearly being bad at shooting the duel to just charging into lines of people with guns and, and ordering people to charge into lines of guns, but, but running with them, which almost feels like you wouldn't expect it of him because he doesn't talk a lot in general. He doesn't engage a lot. And when he was doing comment, when he was kind of engaging with the public, it was through newspaper editing. It was a very impersonal thing. Yeah, it's a distance. Yeah, there was, there's, a, there's a certain amount of distance that is almost demonstrated all throughout his life. And, and yet here we are sprinting headlong into, I mean, come on, what must be almost certain death for him. It feels like he's in this position where he wants absolution by being vindicated on his beliefs or just dying a martyr slash hopefully a hero. I think it goes back to that risk, that risk people had in those times. They were so much more willing to take that gamble. So almost certain death, or he gets to become the dictator of a country. Now, I personally don't want to be a dictator, but I know quite a few people would really enjoy that level of power. I think I'd be good at it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, exactly. Some people would be like, yeah, if I could completely dominate a country and everything I say goes and I am thought of in history as this amazing bringer of democracy to a place that didn't have it before, that was chaos before I got there, a lot of people would want that. The world is a messed up place and I just need to rule it. <laughs> Dr. Horrible sing-along plug. <laughs> but just the idea that you could get on a boat with a bunch of guns and go invade another country and that your presence there would improve the country, that takes a sense of arrogance beyond what I can comprehend. It sounds like a cowboy. It does. When you distill it down that far, just a bunch of guys grabbing their guns and heading somewhere to like make a change. That, that that's sounds a positive like, spin. That, yeah, but that's what it is. Like That's what they claim they're doing. It's what they might believe they're doing. That we can discuss whether or not that's the case, but I think they really did believe that. I'm sure some of them do, and that's what makes it so dangerous. Like you look at like some of the best villains, like out there in in media, uh, like Thanos and um, the, the 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 bad guy from uh, Black Panther. They have real motivations that you can identify, make sense from where they're coming from, and sometimes you might even agree with some of their theory their theory but not their methodology somebody who is clearly not going to be on the winning side of what history looks at but still makes a compelling point is a very dangerous thing and it's what makes somebody like this so sympathetic i think part of the point of this show is we talk about 
Walker. He, he, if he had succeeded, if he had been a little different, he would have been rem- remembered more. In part. And very differently. And Yeah. If he had succeeded, who knows? Because Americans did succeed at these missions. Hawaii is a state. That was basically a filibuster campaign to take over the state of Hawaii. Texas was started in basically the same way and became a state. There are numerous examples of Americans occupying and then swarming. And what I mean by that is a couple of rough settlers show up to some place with guns. Oftentimes they start to have ranches and they basically just try to live there and then they try to take over. And then once they take over, they just bring in more Americans. And after a while, the Americans just outnumbered them, the, them being the local natives. And this, I, I thought of this when we, when we first started this episode, and it's like when we talked about initial westward expansion, you have small groups of people literally carving pathways, creating the lowest barrier of entry for everybody else to follow. If all of Americans had to go out at the same time and try to do this, it, it might not work because not everyone is made of, quote, the right stuff to do this kind of thing. But if you send out those scouting parties and those initial things, it allows everyone else to feel a lot more comfortable taking land from people, as long as somebody else did the majority of the clearing. Oh, that's the you know the myth, even though he's a real man, of like Davy Crockett and these frontiers backwoods men who they are the ones who carved the trail and fought the grizzlies and found the way, you know, over the passes of the giant mountain chains that divide the continent. People had to do that. And this is just the, I think, the maturation of that. Because they're going to places that have been settled for a long time, as had the center of the United States. And they're trying to overthrow entire governments. Things that are more classically established. Places that would use the term government, as opposed to westward expansion, which was uprooting, quote, savages and, quote, like nomadic peoples that didn't have what, what, what we would identify as an organizational structure to them, even though we know that's not the case. But now we're now we are escalating to just taking over things that are considered to be countries and considered sovereign in the eyes of other countries. And not only that, these Central American countries and Caribbean nations, most of which had declared their independence just after the Napoleonic Wars, so we're talking like 1815 to 1820, they had done so in many ways using the language of the American and subsequent French Revolution, these are countries that are using the same arguments that American patriots used to gain their independence from Spain. So we're we're coming down and they're yelling, same team, same team. (laughs) And technically, the Monroe Doctrine was the doctrine that American naval forces and land forces should keep these countries independent. But the culture was so expansionist They just had to go do these things. And it's important to remember, the U.S. government was not a fan of this happening. Like, we, the government was not sanctioning these things. They were actively trying to prevent it. And they will continue to more aggressively prevent it in the future. And it's interesting, but it's interesting, like, even though the government doesn't sanction, support these things and are actively trying to suppress it, up until very recently, these were government campaigns moving westward. Manifest Destiny itself was propagated by the government for Western expansion. So this is something that was ingrained into the American social order and the American ideal up until we hit the, the, the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And then the government's like, and now we're done. And the people were like, this is what we do. 
I, I don't know how to reconcile those things. I don't think there's an answer. I don't, I don't have an answer, but well, I don't know the, how you reconcile those two forces. A great example of that irreconcilability, a great example of that problem with reconciling these two parts is that when soldiers were trying to get on boats to go down to Nicaragua from the very beginning, there would be customs officers and naval officers and policemen trying to stop them. Um, the superintendent of New York City would try to stop these groups of men, and they would attack the superintendent. They would attack the policemen and force their way onto the boat and then have all sorts of legal loopholes that allow them to go there legally. They were trying to do this with a zeal that is hard to understand for us in modern times. The newspapers printed articles about Walker and other filibusters as these heroes, these adventurers. They're like comic book heroes. And I think that was because that's the... These are people going to distant lands doing dangerous, aggressive, adventurous acts. Defeating thousands of backwards people. Once again, for the audio listeners, I'm doing sarcastic air quotes with far fewer men. It's almost it sounds almost superhuman if you if you look at it through that lens of these brave heroes, your brothers and uh like townsfolk heading down with just a few brave souls and overthrowing entire not overthrowing, I'm sorry, liberating, correcting, defeating giant swaths of people. That's I mean it's it's impressive if nothing else. And I I can understand people reading these stories thinking how positive that was simply because it makes them better in their minds they think they're better and i think that's very obvious when you read the racist writings you read the actions that people are doing in this imperialist age they simply thought their culture was better and they do all sorts of horrible things because of that it's cultural arrogance Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of Footnotes. If you'd like to know more about William Walker and his story, uh, whether to read ahead or go deeper, uh, we have all of our resources used listed in our show notes. You can click on those to buy the books. We have a Facebook group where you can talk with us or other people about the show, the episodes, or just whatever. We're just getting off the ground. So if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, it would really help us out, help us get in front of more people, and uh, help us keep this podcast going. So until next time, take care.